Welcome to West Quasset Chapel's podcast. For more information, visit us online at westquassettchapel.com. Good morning. Haggai, Old Testament book is where I would invite you to turn. Chapter 1. We're going to begin reading in just a moment in verse 12. And again, just another reminder, as, as soon as we are done here, we'll make our way to Tioga and enjoy what God has done in the form of public baptisms. Okay. This is the word of God. Verse 12, Haggai chapter 1. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jehezadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. Now honestly, that's the only text we're going to do today, but we're going to read the rest to get a sense of what's taking place. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Jerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehezadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came throughout the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is, is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it, does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. And work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. You, you notice the repetition of Lord Almighty and Lord. I was, th- I was telling someone this week, it was like, w- and, you know, when my kids were younger and they would pray and they would say, Oh Lord, Oh Lord, Oh Lord, Oh Lord. There's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. That's God's covenant name. It's God's way of saying, I am for you. I am for you. Hesed. Unconditional, eternal love. 
Okay, let's, let's pray together. Just a line from a hymn as usual. For, for all that you, you've done, we will thank you, God, for all that you're going to do, for all that you've promised and all that you are is all that has carried us through. And Jesus, we thank you. Thank you for loving and setting us free and thank you for giving your life up just for me. Father, by your spirit in the preaching of your word, please enable every one of us, both here and those online, to, to see you more clearly, to love you more deeply, to accept your love. God, this might be the most important part of the prayer, to accept your love and enter into your joy for us more fully as we follow you and trust you more completely. It is for Jesus' sake we ask these things. Amen. So just keep verse 12 before your eyes. C.S. Lewis once wrote, All that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, social classes, empires, slavery, all of it is the long, terrible story of humanity trying to find something other than God which will make them happy. Walt Lippmann, 1929, in his introduction to, I think, an incredible book, Preface to Morals. Listen to what he writes and what he's doing. He begins by describing this kind of blank misgiving in which man as man finds themselves in. And this is what he says. The civilization of which man is a part of seems to leave a dry, dusty taste in his mouth. He may be very busy with many things. But he discovers one day that he's no longer sure that they are worth doing. He has been much preoccupied, but he's no longer sure he knows why. He has become involved in an elaborate routine of pleasures, and they do not seem to amuse him very much. He finds it hard to believe that doing one thing is better than doing any other thing, or in fact, that it's better than doing nothing at all. It occurs to him that it is a great deal of trouble to live. And that even in the best of lives, the thrills are few and far between. He begins more or less consciously to seek satisfaction because he's no longer satisfied. And all the while he realizes that the pursuit of happiness was always a most unhappy quest. In later stages of his woe, he not only loses his appetite, but becomes excessively miserable trying to recover it. Now, if we're going to be honest about our whole life, that we would all almost say that there's almost this agitation, this, this continual hunt for something better, for something safe, so for something fulfilling in our existence. And that reality is men and women by nature, and it's something that the Bible tells us is so. And throughout history, people have done bad things, but also people have done good things to try to be happy, to try to be at peace, and to try to quench that thirst, that built-in thirst that God himself has put in us. Uh, just another quote, it's, it's beautiful, it's called A Paradox of the Soul, and listen to what he says. The person who wrote this was John Ortberg. He says, a paradox of the soul is that it is incapable of satisfying itself, but it is also incapable of living without satisfaction. You were made for soul satisfaction, but you will only ever find it in God. 
The soul craves to be secure. The soul craves to be loved. The soul craves to be significant. And we find these only in God in a form that can satisfy us. That's why the psalmist says to God, because your love is better than life, my soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. Soul and appetite and satisfaction are dominant themes in the Bible. The soul craves because it was meant for God. And then he quotes the psalmist again. My soul finds rest in God alone. And I'll say this to you. My own personal experience tells me that's true. And what we need to think then is biblically, historically, and actually is in our own personal experience, our fallen nature in that thirst has always looked for something visible, something physical, and something tangible that appears powerful, powerful enough to deal for those justifiably true needs of happiness, of peace, and satisfaction. Now, and I'm going to say that again. Those needs are justified. Happiness, peace, satisfaction. And so, humanity has always looked for the visible. And the text will bear this out. I mean, God's people, as they will do as they're told, and they start rebuilding the temple, but they are immediately disappointed in what they see. What they see. But the God of the Bible... We're going to find this out, and oh God, please help me to preach it right. The one true and living God is a gracious God. He's the God of all grace, and he's going to help them see that. So I did some reading this week, and I found out that there is a, there's a plaque in a church in East Tennessee, and you walk into, it's in the common area, and you walk into the church, and you see the moon is round, written on the plaque. The moon is round. And those were the words of a 14-year-old girl who died of cancer. So two years before her death, she was diagnosed. And, you know, that must have seemed like just seconds to her parents. But for her, she, she took it as a charge for, like, reflection and thinking about her faith and thinking about what happens after death. And so what she did was she created a notebook and she put Bible verses in there and she put stories and her own thoughts as she was just kind of reflecting on all that was taking place in her life and and one dominant thing was God's love so she died family got the notebook and inside there was that index card and it had the words the moon is round and they didn't understand what it meant but they began to read through her diary And once they began to read her diary, they began to understand. And listen to what she wrote. Though the stages of the moon and the clouds of the world may at times disclose only a sliver of the moon, we still know that the moon is round. So also the reality of God's love and our peace with him is in this world going through stages of life in the clouds of suffering. They may seem to deny his heart, but through Jesus, we still know that God is love. Just as much as we know the the moon is round. Loved ones, Christians worship God. Not because they, they see God as having some kind of like social utility for themselves. 
And we don't worship God, not because, you know, the world is horrible and we want to shore up the institutions of the world. Rather, we worship God because he is true. He is honest. He is kind. He is beautiful. He is our friend. And he has forgiven us. And he wills to forgive other people. And personally, here I am again, just reflecting, there are many times when I grow so weary of my lack of trust that God is love, that my peace with him is certain, and if you would, that the moon is round. Now, in these verses, there are some profound things happening, and God's help, we're going to find out what they are. One point, the word of God. Now, as you look at verse 12, remember this, that... God wanted the temple to be rebuilt because in that time, in the rebuilding of that temple, no one needs to remain unforgiven by God because of their sins and no one needs to be separated from God's presence because of their sin. So God has said to his people in the old covenant, there's only one way to deal with your sin. Doesn't that sound familiar? And there's only one place to deal with your sin. And the one place to deal with your sin at that time was the temple. And the one way to deal with your sin was a sacrificial substitute through the blood of bulls and goats, through the ministry of the high priest, so that sins could be forgiven. Now, right away, we see the Old Testament believers were saved by their belief and not their behavior. Okay? They were saved by their belief and not their behavior. So in many ways, as you think about it, the temple really was for them. For God, yes. But for God, because of them, because God wills to forgive. And of course, as we said last week, the only obstacle in the way of both them in that time and us in our time is if we don't think we need God's forgiveness. So let's just think that out just for a moment. It was the main reason that they would gather in the temple for worship having their sins forgiven. And to praise God's name, among other things, that their sins were forgiven and enjoy his very presence, his very person, because their sins had been dealt with. It's just like now. We, we gather together week by week mainly to praise God our sins are forgiven. To embrace, and we learn this from the Bible, week by week, all the multi-sided benefits of the fact that our sins are forgiven. And we enjoy communing with God that our sins are forgiven. And we enjoy learning about telling others about Jesus who shed his blood so that their sins can be forgiven. Think about the sacraments of the church, communion and baptism. What are those pictures of? They're pictures of the death of Jesus Christ for what? For the forgiveness of sins. But if you're thinking it's so prevalent in, in modern day Christianity... In fact, let me just say it like that. Some of modern-day Christianity, essentially, essentially, all that we do in the context of a local worship service is a means to an end. So you hear sermons that are a lot like a home improvement show, right? So you, you watch the shows. You go into the place, and man, this stinks. And in this episode, we're going to focus on this room, and we're going to show you how to, right? And what that does... It makes the believer think that the cross of Jesus Christ achieved very little. 
and that the forgiveness of sins is not a real big deal. Loved ones, just think with me. If you think it's a curious evangelism strategy to despise the people you're trying to bring to Jesus, don't you think it's a curious preaching strategy to make it appear that God is despised in you in some way? And if you don't clean up, and if you don't straighten up, then boom, as in he lowers it. Or not much is going to happen this way until you fix yourself up. Now I want you to think with me, we learned that the expression in Haggai of the reality that the people there didn't think that it was that big of a deal for to have their sins forgiven was in the fact that they didn't want to rebuild the temple. And God... And I'm going to call this an act of grace. God gets their attention by telling them through the prophet Haggai the exact reason they are diminishing returns on their planting and harvesting their life and their work. That's verse 10. Remember, because of you, okay, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. You see on there droughts, uh, grain, new wine, everything's going to pots, all the labor of your hands. And remember, God said two times, think, give careful thought to your way. So what you ought not to do is don't have any sense that God is threatening them. Or he's kind of doing like, you better do this or else. He's simply saying, think about what is taking place. And loved ones, that is a kindness. And then by his grace, he gives them the exact reason why things are the way they are. Uh, his, uh, theologians call that specific revelation. This is why those bad things are happening. So then verse 12, small wonder, Zerubbabel the governor, Joshua the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people began, and quoting from verse 12, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him. Now this is really important. There's a common saying in preaching that says, when the word of God is truly preached then the voice of God is truly heard. That's what's taking place here. And, and I think that's, that saying is going to help us because as you read this, there's something different there. Just look at the Bible again. They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and, okay, not in the message of the prophet Haggai, but and the message of the prophet Haggai. So when you read that, don't read it like this. They obeyed the voice of the Lord and the message of Haggai as if they were two separate things. And don't read it like they obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God, because, you know, because God spoke to them audibly and he also spoke to them through the preaching of Haggai. Don't read it like that. But read it as God's voice and the message of the prophet are one. A little bit tedious, I admit it, but this is why I can say things like this. This is why I need to say things like this. You find the same thing happening in Acts 10. Peter's at Cornelius' house. Peter, Peter is speaking, and this is what the Bible says. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. Okay? And what this means is there, were, there, there wasn't two different things happening. There wasn't a divine word and a spirit movement, but rather both are one. The words of the human messenger is the voice of the Lord himself. The distinction gives more weight that this is God's voice in Haggai's words. 
In other words, what Haggai was saying was the voice of the Lord their God and the message that he gave was the voice of the Lord their God. I understand that, a little tedious, but there wasn't two different agencies, but one agency, God, working or acting on them. In other words, God was speaking to them directly through the voice of a mere man, and the emphasis was that God was speaking to them. And so the one doesn't discount the other, and they're, you know, they're not, definitely not uh, at odds with each other. Both are there. Hence the saying, when the word of God is truly preached, then the voice of God is truly heard. That's what's happening here. Now let me give you one more New Testament example. It's 1 Thessalonians 2. Because every time the word of God is truly preached then the voice of God is truly heard. 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul writes, and we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. So when Paul came, he preached, they listened, that's the word of God. And then the beauty of the, that church is they obeyed. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's church in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. And the same is true here. Again, verse 12, Then Zerubbabel and Joshua, the whole remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him. And then here's that second phrase, And the people feared the Lord. Okay, so this is another different phrase. And the one builds on the other because they, they had direct communication from God through the prophet Haggai. So you got to try to feel the weight of that as we go into this next point. Verse 12b, and the people feared the Lord. And here we are again with something different. This is a different moment. Now, as you see that, it's period and then, and the people feared the Lord. So the, the, there's some kind of something going on that we need to be aware of. And so, I'm going to suggest to you there's two different ways to look at this verse in the context. One is right and one is wrong. One is grace, and another is just the manipulation of, of works. So, the first way you could look at it is you say the reason why they obeyed and they rebuilt the temple because they just flat out feared the Lord. As in, they're afraid of Him because God has His hand on their pocketbook. And he was putting a squeeze on it. So, no temple, no food. And the people say, well, all right, let, let's build the temple. They, they wanted things to get better. So, out of fear of the Lord, they built the temple. But if you just turn the page in chapter 2, God will say to them directly, do not fear. Do not fear. So here's the thing. If the reason why they built the temple was they feared God as in afraid, and God allowed that, and God didn't speak any words into that at that moment, then later he says, oh, by the way, you know, don't be afraid. If you're going to pay attention to the context, God all of a sudden kind of looks like he's a little disingenuous. Maybe a little manipulative like the pagan gods. I mean, here's a perfect example. This would be like you wanting someone to do something for you. 
And so you kind of frighten them into doing it for you. And then you let them do it. You let them do what you need them to do. But then, you know, once the project's just about done, you're like, oh, by the way, you know, there's nothing to be afraid of here. That, that old fear thing, it wasn't really real. It got you working, but it wasn't a real thing. A parent, right? A parent who kind of emphasizes you better or else. Fear or else just to get what they want done. Or like the preacher who says, and this really happened, the preacher says out of Malachi, for example, if you don't tithe, telling the church, if you don't tithe, then you're under a curse. Okay? I hope you know that's wrong. But anyway, and then on Easter Sunday, Sunday hopefully he may, maybe he preaches from Galatians, and it says, you who are in Christ are removed from the curse of the disobedience of the law. And let's say someone remembers the curse because you're not giving sermon. And then they hear the, you're not cursed because of Jesus' sermon. And they go to him and say, can you help us out here? This is a little confusing. Are we cursed or are we not? I mean, what, what would they say? Oh, 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 sorry. You know, we were a little down on funds. <laughs> Just needed to get you stirred up and deeper into your wallets. You know. You see how that works? And, and I imagine, you know, many a religious, not, I'm not saying Christian, but a religious conservative would like, oh yeah, they got the fear of God in them and that'll show him. That's what people need. They need a little bit of that fear of the God. Back in the day, we were afraid of God all the time. And look at us. Okay, you want to? You really want to do that? But there's another way to look at this, which I'm going to suggest to you is the right way. And I want you to bear with me. The word there, fear, do you see it there? And the people feared the Lord, verse 12. It's the Hebrew word, Yahweh. Now, it sounds like Yahweh, but it's not. It's Y-A-R-E. And when that word has more to do with reverence, as in worship, and not fear, as in, you know, like scare the bejeebas out of you, there's no accent mark over the E. So it's just Y-A-R-E. No accent over the E. But when you want to fear like as in afraid, you put an accent over the E. For example, here's the I'm afraid one. Genesis 3, 9. Adam in the garden after a sin, hiding from God, hiding from God. God says, where are you? He replies, Adam, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid. Accent over the E. You terrified me because I was naked, because I sinned. So I hid myself. But there's no accent mark here. Now, if you're going to follow the context, this all of a sudden makes complete sense because the weight of it is reverence for God in this sense. They are in awe of God. Why isn't God sending us back in exile? We disobeyed him. Why isn't he doing what he did before and sending a foreign army to ruin us and just ship us out? He's not doing any of that. They are in awe of God. That's what the text says. They knew that they were wrong because the prophet of God preached the word of God to them. They heard and they were experiencing the implications of their wrongness. You know, because before it might as well have been, you know, it could have been like, oh, we had a bad year in the crops. Next year will be better. This year was a bad year. Next year will be better. No, this was God. They now know through the preaching of the word that it was God who was putting the hand on their pocketbooks, if you would. And so God 
then, for merciful reasons, was acting on them, and now they're beginning to feel it in this way. Now pay attention, please. They have sinned against God. The preaching of Haggai exposed that. They knew the temple was the priority. They resisted. And in hearing that, they had sinned. They know it. And at that moment, there is no place to take their sin. No place to deal with their sin. What's going to happen to people at the end when they haven't taken their sin to Jesus? Wrath of God. In some way, they, in, if it's in, a, in a kind of metaphysical way, they're sensing that. They, they said, verse 2, it wasn't time. Verse 8, God says, yes, it is. Now, what are they going to do? What are they going to do? Well, before they ever begin to build, they begin to worship God and revere God because they find out that God really does want to forgive sin and God is really holding back his judgment on them and now they understand they need a temple so that the high priest can make sacrifice for their sin. So here they revered the Lord as people who are being guided and carried and grace is being poured out. In other words, what they're doing in that little sentence and the people fear the Lord, they are worshiping. They are worshiping in reverence the living God. I put down this hymn actually this morning, at the cross, at the cross, I surrender my life. And then the line, I'm in awe of you and no accent over the E. <laughs> I'm in awe of you. Okay, why? Well, your love ran red and my sin washed white. I owe it all to you. I owe it all to you, Jesus. What they were saying in that little sentence is, oh God, you are so merciful. You are helping us here. We see the wrong. Your wrath could justifiably come, but you're holding it back. And now you're helping us know that your house matters because forgiveness matters to you. Now remember the words of Isaiah, the word of God will not return void, but it will accomplish his purpose or God's purpose. So that, so that happens every time the word of God is truly pe- preached. Then yes, the voice of God is truly heard. And then the purposes of God will be truly accomplished. You can bank on that. It's the only thing I have going for me as a preacher, to be honest with you. Now, as you think about that, it should go without saying that as New Testament Christians, it, we should understand that yes, God disciplines his children because he loves us. But do not think that somehow your well-being is ultimately locked into your behavior. It's locked into the behavior of Jesus Christ. We sang it a couple of different ways this morning. And don't think, you know, that, you know, God roughs you up a little bit. He likes to kind of frighten you a little bit in a, you know, very religious way. And you don't want to be frightened, so you do good. Not because you love him, but, but you don't want to be afraid. That's pagan. It's not Christian. It sets aside the work of Jesus Christ and and doctrines of justification and adoption. But we all can be that way sometimes. Remember in Romans, when we, Romans 5, God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. And the idea is that it's a perpetual flow of God's love to God's people. Never ending perpetual flow. On our bad days, perpetual flow of love. On our good days, perpetual flow of love. Uh, When things are well and when things are not well, 
Remember the hymn that when the world has plunged me in its deepest pit, I find the Savior there. And I can't say this enough. We don't relate to God as Christians through our works. How could we? Why would we? If you're doing that, then you're going to have to rethink the life of Jesus and the life of Paul and the life of Peter as you see the external realities of their existence. And you're also, and forgive me, you're also going to have to rethink the lives of pastors who have renounced Jesus Christ, but you know they're living high on the hog now. The word of God, loved ones, came upon them and it acted upon them and it was grace. And they were experiencing that and they revered God for it. They revered God because they're discovering that this God who they have ignored and this God who they pushed aside is the God of all grace. <laughs> Remember the hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. And there's a verse that says that grace taught my heart to fear and grace my fears Relieved in some ways, that is what's taking place here. And I want you to listen to me, and especially young people. And I want to tell you, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, I have so much confidence in the future because of the young people that I know here. You are so precious to God, everyone, but especially the young people. You're so precious to God. And, and if you're like me, you're going to struggle with stuff in life. I hope you don't as much as I do, but you will. Some of it will be very disappointing. You shouldn't plan for total victory. But here's the thing. You tell yourself and you tell the evil one and anyone that tries to, you know, like in your face condemn you, you tell them, I'm not what I ought to be. I know that. I'm not what I want to be. I know that. But because of Jesus Christ, I am what I am. And I'm not what I used to be. And he sees me. And because of Christ, he is pleased. He is pleased. And therefore I have hope. And therefore I have peace. And therefore I am learning to find satisfaction in that truth. The temple that they're going to rebuild is, in an old covenant way is going to restore and refresh and remind them again and again, once a year when they make those sacrifices, that God is a gracious God. That God saves by substitution. That you belong to God. And God is yours, world without end. And that is the heart of Christianity. And that is the heart of Christ. In the one sacrifice he made, that is the heart of Christ. It's a terrible way to live. With all those desires that we have. To try to get them from God. Simply because of your works. We have a new heart. We've been given a new heart. I read this story a long time ago. I pulled it out of my files. 2012 um, South Florida Centennial newspaper. There was a firefighter, Joshua Schwamenbonner. That's a Jewish name. But anyway, Joshua, he lost his life in a, in a fire in Florida. But they were able to preserve his heart. And in some amazing way, they took his heart and was able to transplant it into a lady named Adelia Harris. And the reason why that story made the news is because the family was able to hear the heartbeat for the first time of Joshua in Adelia's body. 
And as you imagine, the people are just breaking down. They're crying. A new life has been given to Adelia and to her body because of the heart of Joshua. It was so good. And, and, and you recognize what, what is the Christian name for Joshua is what? Or Hebrew, excuse me, Jesus. Now you need to tell yourself over and over again that Christ lives in me. Claim your identity. Do not let your past name you. Do not other, let others name you. Do not let your failures name you. Let God alone name you. You are his child. And when you know that, not only do you, is your identity change, you understand that, but then you begin to worship. And you begin to see yourself as, as God intends you to see yourself. And you become overwhelmed. And just ask yourself, there are moments when we are overwhelmed by the love of God in ways that are profound. Would to God they come more freely. Because if they come more freely, then we begin to exercise a life and plan for a life in light of the love of God. And not in light of our fears or our failures or our weaknesses. You begin to recognize that you are not your sin. You are not your shame. You are not your adultery. You are not your addiction. You are not. You have a new identity. You're not your failures. You're not your successes. You're not your losses. You're not your wins. You're not your title. You're not your promotions. You're not your grades. You're not the school that you get into. You're not the school that you don't get into. You're not the one that you may have slept with. You're not the house that you live in. You're not the house that you, you know, would like to live in. You're not the race that you won. And of course, you're not the race that you lost. Because above everything, if you are in Christ, you are God's child. Jesus is your righteousness. He's your savior. He's your king. He's your elder brother. But he is your friend. And he is your peace. You are united to him. He indwells in you. You are a member of his family. And I know the past and I know the problems. I get that. Because, but that's why one, for one reason I was baptized. To show my faith in what Jesus has done. That my past is really dead. And I'm really walking a new life. And the power of sin is there. Okay. It's no longer there. The guilt of sin. Gone. Crushed. Power gone of sin. Guilt gone of sin. But here's the thing. And I believe with all my heart. That's the, way, that's the reason why God writes the Bible in the way he does. By nature, we resist grace. There's like something like 4,300 other religions. By nature, we resist grace. By nature, we just, just some way, so that it can be on us to get it right. And that is why the Bible, when the Bible's truly preached... The voice of God is truly heard. And what God wants to say to people is either to his people, your sins are forgiven, or those who are not, your sins can be forgiven. And in response to that, because everything good out of Christianity flows from that, in response to that, we worship God. We, we reverence God. Do you, do you notice, I think it was in the last song that we sing, the, the whole amazing love, and you get to this point, you're like, what? How did this happen? 
mean, I know me now and I know me then. How did this happen that such love and, and everything's fine now between us and God? How does that happen? Because he writes that because he justifiably can't find anything in him to say, oh, that's why it happened. He has to look up and say grace is why it happened. It can be such a mean world sometimes. We understand that. But sometimes the church of Jesus Christ can be mean too. And I think one of the reasons why that is is they place so low value on the fact that their sins have been forgiven. And so I want to end like this. Our happiness begins with God pursuing us. God pursuing us. Thanks for your attention. Remember, we have a baptism to go to after we're done here. Let's, let's pray together. God and Father, I think one of the most important things that you could do in the life of your children is to remind us that our own goodness could not make us worthy of your acceptance. In the, in the midst of our, this prison, we'll call it, of sinful flesh, to remind us that our freedom is full and our freedom is final and it is real and it's been won by the precious blood of Jesus Christ alone. It just... It removes not only our excuses, but it helps us, God, day by day. And so for all the people here in this room, beginning with myself, that are just struggling with whatever, and for the people here who fear you in the wrong way, that do that great work, God, changing our fear to worship and reverence. O Spirit of God, come down. Let mercy and grace abound. Our passionate prayer shall be Christ in me. Christ in me. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Thank you for listening this week. If you were helped or encouraged by the sermon, please share it with others. For additional information, visit us online at westquestchapel.com. There you'll find other resources to connect you to Christ and His Church. Also, we invite you to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or our YouTube channel. We hope you join us again next week as we grow together in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.